Well, the message of that special really fit the theme of the worship team, didn't it? God's creation, and yet in all he's created, nothing gives us pleasure like him. Amen. Jesus was well into the second year of his ministry. He was busy in a campaign in Galilee, having left Judea. And when we look at the gospel accounts, it is somewhat difficult to arrange the chronology of this particular season of the life of Christ. But when we attempt to do so, then this is what seems to come forth. Jesus was walking along in a peripatetic ministry and teaching, and he and those who were with him, followed by a great multitude, came to an area where there was a natural amphitheater. Beside it was a mountain that rose a short distance. Jesus walked up that mountain to a plateau not far above the crowd and called from the crowd a group of men. And then he left them and he climbed the mountain and spent the night in prayer. He came down from the mountain the next morning where the men were waiting and out of that group called out, And these twelve then were to be with him for the rest of his earthly ministry. They became the apostles, the disciples of Jesus Christ. He then sat down and delivered what we have come to call the Sermon on the Mount which is the most complete dissertation upon the kingdom of of God that we find in all of Scripture. What the kingdom is like, what it is about, and how citizens of the kingdom are to conduct themselves. Now that record is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and Luke chapter 6 beginning in verse 20. This morning we want to look at the section in Matthew and specifically today to talk about the teaching that our Lord has given us in what we have come to call the Lord's Prayer. In my opinion, that really is not the best name. I think the thing that could best be called the Lord's Prayer is in John 17, where Jesus Christ poured out His heart unto God, praying for the unity of those who would follow Him in coming centuries. This really is a model prayer. So hear the word of the Lord. When you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites. They love to stand in the synagogue and pray and on street corners so they might be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. (laughs) Praise of men is all they'll get. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room and when you have shut the door, 
pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who hears in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetitions like the Gentiles do, for they suppose they'll be heard for the many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, in the earliest manuscripts, the prayer stops there. In later manuscripts, you find different ones have added this and someone else has added another. That which has come to us most commonly is, Thy, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And someone seems to have added that through the century as well as some other versions of it to make this prayer more appropriate for liturgical use in the church. But our Lord didn't continue in this way. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. February 9th, 1941 was Boy Scout Sunday. And when I was in the Boy Scouts, every Boy Scout attended church on Boy Scout Sunday and you wore your uniform. After all, the Scout law says a Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. And the Scout oath begins, on my honor I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country. That's how it starts. And we took it seriously. And so every year on Boy Scout Sunday, every Boy Scout I knew went to church in uniform. February 9th, 1941, I was not old enough to be a Boy Scout. You had to have past your 12th birthday in those days. That no longer is true. So I was there in my Cub Scout uniform. And sitting next to me was my best friend, Jimmy Foshi. Jimmy was half Cherokee and half French, Foshi being French. And at the conclusion of the sermon, when Dr. C.W. Lipsy offered the invitation to come and accept Christ, Jimmy Foshi and I came down the aisle together. Before the congregation, we confessed Jesus. And in less than 10 minutes, we were in the baptistry and immersed into Jesus Christ. Now, Next February, that will have been 72 years ago. Think of that. From that day forward, 
I doubt that there has been a single day that I have not prayed. Sometimes for hours. Sometimes briefly. And in recent years, constantly (laughs) praying throughout the day as we age, we see more the need for that. And since I've been praying consistently now for almost 72 years, you might look at me and say you are observing a man who is an expert in prayer. (laughs) Not so. Even though I have studied prayer, even though I've written papers and studies on prayer, and I've been praying faithfully every day for almost 72 years, prayer to me is still a mystery. I know it is real, and it is life, but what a mystery. Some of you probably saw the movie, Bruce the Almighty. You remember Bruce was complaining to God about the way he was handling things, and God said, try it for a while. And one of the first things that happened to Bruce was he couldn't stand all these voices that were coming, all of these prayers. Oh, I wonder, here's a mystery. How can I, in my bedroom at 4.30 in the morning, be praying to God at the same time a million other people are doing it And God hears me? How is that possible? What a mystery. The Apostle Paul was doing the will of God. He was traveling, putting his life on the line, going through shipwreck and being beaten and imprisoned and even best friends turning against him, faithfully serving God, led by the Holy Spirit every place he went. And yet, he wrote to the Ephesians, pray that I can be bold. And then he wrote, you have helped me by your prayers. How could their prayers have made any difference? God knew what he was doing. God was anointing him. God was using him. And yet, you have helped me by your prayers. I stand today amazed at the mystery of prayer. But I know it's real. Now, what we have in these verses, of course, is a dissertation on prayer, but it is not a complete dissertation on prayer. It is a very simple dissertation on prayer. For example, there are some things that are missing. Paul said that we should make our requests known to God with thanksgiving, and we've just finished the thanksgiving season Thanksgiving is nowhere to be found in this prayer. It just isn't there. Paul urged us in Ephesians 5.18 to make intercession for the saints. You don't find intercession in this prayer. It is not a complete dissertation on the topic of prayer. And yet this very simple model of prayer has a lot to say to us this morning Let's hear what the Lord has to say to us. 
first he addresses the wrong motive for a public prayer. When you pray, do not be as the hypocrites are who love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on street corners in order to be seen of men. Public prayer is difficult. Difficult even when approached for the right reason. When someone stands on Sunday morning and prays the congregational prayer, that person really is in the role of a priest. Because a priest is one who approaches God in behalf of the people. He brings the offering in the Old Testament. He brings the people's prayers. He offers the incense in the Old Testament. And so any time a man or woman stands and prays a public prayer for the congregation, that person is in the role of a priest. He is taking something from the people unto God. I don't know about you. That sounds scary. <laughs> what a responsibility to stand before God and be the people's spokesman to the Lord of the universe. It's very difficult to play a, pray a public prayer without being aware of the fact that you have a bunch of folks hearing what you're saying and you have to fight the tendency to not make speeches but just to speak to God in behalf of the people. This warning that Jesus gives also fits what he says about fasting. Don't do it just to be seen. Don't just give benevolent gifts to be seen. But let all of this be done unto the Lord. And then he says, don't use meaningless repetitions. Now notice he first says, don't be like hypocrites. And then he says, don't be like the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles believed that they could fatigue the gods. The Romans called it fatigere deus. They could fatigue the gods, wear them out by all these words they kept putting before them. And so the gods would say, you've worn me out so you can have what you want. That was the belief of the pagans, the Gentiles. Paul, uh, Jesus said, don't, uh, don't be like that. But how does that jive with Luke 18, <laughs> which tells us to again and again and again come to God? How does that jive with Paul's exhortation, 1 Thessalonians 5:17, pray without ceasing? How does that jive with the many scriptural records of those who pray, cry out to God night and day? Paul speaks of the widows who do that. He said he did that for the Thessalonians. He said he did that for Timothy. How does this exhortation don't keep pouring all these words toward heaven? How does that fit these exhortations? Does this statement of Jesus in Matthew 6 mean that we should not cry out to God over and over again? Does it mean, as some teach today, we should pray once and never again because to pray more than once expresses lack of faith? No, it doesn't mean that. 
because of the scriptural examples and exhortations we just cited, it cannot mean that. What does it mean? The Greek word translated meaning meaningless rep repetitions is batologeo. It's a word rarely used. There's some controversy as to where it came from. Erasmus said, well, Herod mentioned a king named Battus who was a stammerer, so that's probably where it came from. Another scholar, Sudius, said, no, really, there was this poet who also was named Battus, and he wrote long poems, and they consisted of nothing but repetitious phrases. Most scholars today believe it is onomana poik, which means it sounds like what it means, the way a stammerer would stammer, bado, 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 bado. But regardless of what the origin of that word is, our Lord Jesus condemned empty words and empty sounds in prayer. Think of the Buddhist prayer. Well, you know, I went online just out of curiosity as I was thinking about this sermon and I found that you could buy a Buddhist prayer wheel for either $39 or $1,500. I don't know if the $1,500 is, does more. <laughs> also, notice there was a website you could go to, and every time you clicked it, that launched a prayer. And about a million prayers doing this had been, it said, sent out into the world. I don't care whether my prayers would go to the world or not. I want them to go there. I've heard some criticize the Roman Catholic practice of saying aves over and over again, saying paternosters over and over again as being condemned here. But we really don't have to look at others and condemn them, do we? <laughs> we need to look at ourselves. When we pray, is there real content in our words? Oh, God, is it from our heart? Or are we just babbling, <laughs> making a lot of noises without thoughtful content? Sometimes, you know, when you grow up in a particular discipleship group, you hear these phrases over and over again, and so when you start praying, you utter those too. <laughs> we need to have meaning to every word that we speak to the God of heaven. Our Father. Johann Sebastian Bach's father was a twin. Matter of fact, an identical twin. And this man and his brother looked so much alike that when they were together, their wives could not tell them apart except for some garment they might have on. But Johann's mother said once the baby was born, from then on, she had no trouble identifying her husband. He was the one little Johann Sebastian called Papa. <laughs> he knew who his father was. Isn't it wonderful that we can know who our father is? The relationship with our Heavenly Father is real. It is alive. Once we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and there is that experiential knowledge of our Father. 
Interestingly, every New Testament prayer is always addressed to the Father. Now, in the Jesus movement, the pattern arose of praying to Jesus. You do not find any prayers prayed to Jesus. Matter of fact, the only time Jesus is ever addressed is when he appears in a vision, so it's natural to speak to him. Uh, Stephen, when he was killed, he saw the Lord and said, Lord, lay not up this sin to their charge. Paul, on the road to Damascus, Saul, rather, when the Lord appeared to him, he spoke to him. John the Revelator in chapter 1, Jesus the glorified Lord appeared. He spoke to him. Now it's possible when Peter was upon the rooftop in Joppa and these animals were let down in a sheet, he saw this vision and the voice said, Arise, Peter, take and eat. And Peter said, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Was he talking to God the Father or to Jesus? I don't know because the term Lord in Acts 4 is applied to God the Father. So what does Lord mean? I don't know, but the point is this. New Testament prayer is always prayed to God the Father. Papa, (laughs) the one to whom we turn. What do fathers do? Fathers provide for their children. Fathers instruct their children. Fathers discipline their children. Fathers bless their children and earthly fathers sometimes grieve because they do not have in their possession the money or funds needed to care for their children. Our Heavenly Father has no such lack, does He? Praise His name. Not every man who begets a child is a father. He may just be a stud. A father loves his children. You know, I couldn't stand babies when I was younger. Till Jimmy was born, my firstborn, <laughs> and something happened. And to this day, when I see a baby, there's something happens because God has given me a father's heart. I'm not inclined to pick them up and kiss them. <laughs> I'm not a politician. But there's something about a father's heart toward a child. And that's what our Heavenly Father has for every one of us. That loving father's heart. But notice Jesus said pray like this. Our Father. And he had just said when you pray go into your inner room and after you've shut the door... Pray to your father who is in secret and your father who hears in secret. How do you do? What's the sense of our father if he's talking about shutting yourself off in a room and praying by yourself? Ah, there is that sense that we should never lose the fact that we are a part of the family. And even when we're praying alone in the wee hours of the morning, we are not just an isolated individual, but we are a part of that family of God. One member, our Father. He is not just mine, He is yours. I'm not an only child. Praise His name. That sin. In, in our Western Christianity, we have become such individualists. 
that we lose that beautiful sense that we are a part of a family. And even when I'm praying alone, I'm still praying not just to my Father, but our Father. Isn't that a beautiful thought? A beautiful thought. And then, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Think about this. We are addressing the being who is totally other. Well, that's what the Greek word that we render hallowed means. It means holy, apart, separated, holy other. And yet this one who is holy other says, come unto me, come unto me. We're addressing a holy one. In the 1960s, conversational prayer became very common. And the teaching went like this. You had a picture Jesus sitting on the chair, and you and he are having a conversation. Totally, totally unbiblical. We are approaching the very God of heaven. I can understand perhaps a motivation of Roman Catholicism that venerates Mary. Or here is this august God. How do I approach him without someone who is a mediator going in my behalf? I don't need Mary. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And Hebrews says we have this great high priest. There he uses the term, the Son of God. We have this mediator. And we've said so often here that all prayers to God the Father in the flow of the Holy Spirit. It, it's, it's as if there is a, a river flowing toward God and we're caught up in that river and moving in our prayer in the Holy Spirit. And we can do that because Jesus Christ, our mediator, has opened the door for us. Had he not done so, such an approach could not be possible the way it is today. And think about this. You know, we're, we're, we're praying to this marvelous God of whom we sang this morning, the creator of the universe, the one who is over all, the one who is totally other. And what do we do? <laughs> so often we come to him with a to-do list, don't we? <laughs> Uh, here's my daily list I make every day, and I start checking them off, and there's always somebody that interrupts, and I never get finished and have to deal with frustration. But how often in our prayers before, we, we just approach God with our to-do list as if he were our servant, the bellboy, the bellhop. Certainly we are to bring them. Paul says, make your request known to God. Thanksgiving, our Lord Jesus Christ set the example of coming to God with requests. But 
do we realize the identity of this one to whom we are bringing this request? Our Father who is in heaven, holy be thy name, the God of the universe. The elders know about this. I told them about it. I recently taught to a particular group. And never in my whole life had I sensed resistance to what I was saying as I did in that group. It was was really, uh, I just felt beat up. And when it came time, they, they asked me to teach the do-loss principle. That's what I was teaching. Then when it came time to the break, discussion, the very first person said, everything you're saying is totally contradicting what, our, what the previous speaker taught us. Somebody else had spoken for two and a half hours. He said we should demand things from God. I said, I would never demand something from God. And immediately a lady on my right said, we should never pray thy will be done. Oh, what hubris. We're approaching the God of the universe. Oh, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Order my steps wherever the king rules. That is his kingdom. Please rule in my heart. Please rule in our church. Please rule in our city. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. It's interesting the The Greek says, in essence, give us today's bread today. (laughs) Isn't that something? It means, I trust you. I trust you. I'm not going to fill my cupboard because you just may not be reliable. I may fill my cupboard, (laughs) but it's not because I don't trust you, my God. Now, this doesn't mean we're supposed to sit down. Say, okay, Lord, open up heaven and pour it out. <laughs> Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you rise from sleep? little sleep, little slumber, little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need will rise like an armed man. That's the Bible. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 12, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you'll behave properly toward outsiders and not be in need. 2 Thessalonians 3, even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone's not willing to work, then he shouldn't eat. We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. 
Ephesians 4.28, He who steals must steal no longer but labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who is in need. You see, that's God's plan. (laughs) But even though that's God's plan, and even though we work hard, and even though we're diligent, there's no guarantee, is there? Especially where we are today, as we look to the future and the uncertainty that is not just in America, but all over the world, we better depend on God while we are diligently laboring. (laughs) The point is, we don't trust our cleverness, we don't trust our ambition, nor our skill, but we trust God in the midst of our responsibility to see that needs are met. Ultimately, it is the Father who looks after us as we seek first the kingdom of heaven. And then forgive us as we forgive others. If you forgive others, Your Heavenly Father will forgive you. If you will not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now notice that every, as you notice the context of that earlier in the prayer, and as you read the later statements that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount about forgiveness, it always has to do with some personal affront, something that has been done wrong to you. And so you extend forgiveness to that person. I wonder, what do I do about wrongs that I see being done to other people? Can I forgive that? Should I? A church in Porter, Oklahoma, I don't think this church exists anymore. A church that was composed of rather hardy people. And there was a couple in the church in which the man beat his wife. And the preacher decided they needed to do something about it. And so he got together the deacons, and they took their shotguns and ball bats, and went to the house, and the wife answered the door. The husband wasn't there. He's down at the barn. And so the preacher said, we went down to the barn to counsel with him. (laughs) I asked, did it work? He never beat his wife again. I have no idea what their counseling consisted of, (laughs) but I can sort of guess. I wonder... Should they have said, oh, we forgive you, brother? (laughs) Or should they have counseled? You see, this subject of forgiveness is somewhat complicated, isn't it? (laughs) But certainly, if someone smites me on one cheek, I must turn the other. I must bless those who persecute me and pray for those who despitefully use me. But on the other hand, I think I need to defend the helpless until they repent and then if God forgives them the records erased 
But forgiveness does not mean that I'm a fool. If I have done business with someone and they have defrauded me and I give them another chance and they defraud me and I've forgiven them twice, it doesn't mean I'm going to be a fool and give them a third opportunity. It just means I'm not going to harbor any resentment in my heart. I will not be unforgiving. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. And this is the masculine adjective in the Greek, and so it is usually understood to mean the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. James makes a very heroic statement in James 1-2. My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, or rather, Heroic statement, isn't it? And yet, here we're told to pray, lead us not into temptation. The very same word is used here in James as is used in this passage in Matthew. You know, it's an interesting observation that some of those who work hardest for peace are soldiers who have endured battle. They understand what the battle is is like. And so it is appropriate, O Lord, lead us in a way that we will be safe from the evil one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and elsewhere surrounding that, Paul is talking about a situation that existed in Corinth in which the local cafeteria was the temple where the idols were worshipped. Controversy arose in the church. Is it right for Christians to go eat at that cafeteria? Because after all, we're surrounded by idols. It's an idol temple, and most of the food that's served is food that's been consecrated to idols. Not only that, if you go out into the marketplace and you decide to buy some meat in the meat market, the only meat that is there is meat that the priests have brought from the temple that had been consecrated to the gods and now is sold in the marketplace to make money for the temple. Is it right to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And Paul weaves throughout that letter different comments on this and says there's nothing to idols. They're a bunch of stone. Now there's spirits behind them. And even though that liberty is there, he gives various reasons why maybe it's not the best idea. And one is this. He talks about the Jews who left Egypt. He said they were all baptized under the same cloud as Moses. They drank of the same spiritual rock. They all, all had these tremendous experiences with God. In spite of that, many began to murmur. Many began to complain. And then he says, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able with the temptation to provide a way of escape, that you'll be able to endure it. But therefore, my brethren, 
flee idolatry. Now, I speak as the wise men. You judge what I say. <laughs> In other words, why subject yourself to an environment that somehow may start to have negative impact upon you spiritually? We have been grieved, all of us, I suppose, by the adulterous fare of General Petraeus. Tragic what's happened to this man, his wife, his family. And the woman with whom he had the affair, tragedy for her, her husband, her children, and others involved. But I want to tell you something. I find myself grieving more deeply often during the year as I hear of prominent churchmen who have fallen into sin. And let me tell you, I hear of many you don't hear about. Tragic. Some sexual sin, some greed, financial sin. Let him who thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. In no bombastic way walk into the battle where you know the devil has a chance to pull you down. Oh Lord, lead us in a way that we will not be subject to the evil one. Let's stand this morning and let's close by reciting together that model prayer including the addition. <laughs> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but I am. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks, Jim. You can remain standing. We appreciate the word, brother.